Hey, before we start this episode, we wanted to tell you about our upcoming virtual 5K. Are you sick of being cooped up inside for the past year? How about getting outside and also doing something to support Israel and the Jewish people? Join us for our first ever Bless Israel virtual 5K. We've put together a three-mile path that actually walks you through a route in Israel. You can walk or run the week of April 12th at your own pace and in your own timing. Sign up by March 21st and join an international community of believers around the world committed to Israel. For more details, go to a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. When we're talking about unique calling and identity and distinction of a Jewish person, it's not better than. We're actually supposed to be the servants of everyone else to point to, to be a signpost to the nations of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness and the merciful loving kindness of the living God. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today, we're going to actually answer your questions. We say on every podcast, submit your questions, send them in, and we'll answer them. Uh, So we have a handful of them we're going to answer today. Many of them focus on Jewish and Messianic Jewish customs, a couple other things thrown in. So let's discuss. So Ezra, the first question comes from Brooks. And the question is, are Jewish holidays part of Mosaic law? And if so, is it a form of idolatry by observing keeping them? And the question references Romans 7, 1 to 6. Yeah, great question, Brooks. So let me first talk about, I want to I break the question down a little bit. Part of Mosaic law. So what does Brooks mean by that? I'm thinking... Brooks means what we call the Mosaic Covenant, right? Or we know sometimes in Judaism it's called the Torah, uh, the Torah, or we can say the 613 specific commandments given to Israel by Moses during their time uh, wandering in the wilderness before they enter the promised land of Israel. So, and then are the Jewish holidays, well, there's a number of Jewish holidays that are part of those 630 commandments, in essence, holidays that Israel is commanded to keep. So among those, not exclusively, are Passover in the spring every year, and then uh, about seven weeks later, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. These are all kind of agricultural holidays that also have spiritual underpinnings and spiritual significance. And we have, and in the Christian world, we know Feast of Weeks is is Pentecost, and then in the fall you have Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, or the Feast of of Trumpets, and then you have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Uh, to kind of round out the year. Interestingly, Hanukkah doesn't happen in history, the first Hanukkah, until the intertestamental period between when the writers of the Old Testament finished writing and when Jesus appears on the scene around 0 AD, give or take. Um, so Hanukkah is not mentioned, and some of the other more, you know, the, we'll call them the minor feasts like Purim from the book of Esther, not mentioned also because it hadn't happened yet. But these major Jewish holidays are part of Mosaic law or the covenant God makes with Israel through Moses in his lifetime. And so with that as our foundation, um, I I do. the, The question was, are these holidays in essence, are keeping these holidays a form of idolatry? So let's let's identify idolatry, right? Idolatry defined is is worshiping or lifting something up to divine significance other than the living God himself. Fair? That's idolatry. So 
are keeping Jewish feasts prescribed or commanded to Israel to keep in the Old Testament, specifically in the first five books of the Old Testament, lifting something up to the level of God or or worshiping them? Good question. Uh, let me answer first by looking actually at one of the passages in Leviticus 23, uh, Carly, where it, where and there's a number of places where these holidays are are listed, and God kind of emphasizes them and then emphasizes them again to make sure Israel has it written and gets it right so they can teach it to their, to their children before they enter the promised land after Moses dies. But Leviticus 23, verse 41, it's right after the passage about the holidays ending with the description of Feast of Tabernacles. And it says about the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, this celebration uh, is to be celebrated as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. This is God through Moses and Aaron speaking to Israel. And he says, this is a statute for all your generations. And in Hebrew, it actually says olam, which means forever throughout your generations. And Carly, when I read, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I feel like a broken record. But when God says forever, I believe he means forever because he's a promise-keeping God. And while man has fallen short, Jew or Gentile, of, of keeping his commandments and walking in his ways in every generation, he's the ultimate promise-keeper, right? And so when he says, this is going to last forever, I believe him. And so this idea of uh, holidays that Israel, that the Jewish people are commanded to keep forever, I believe endures to this day. So now that there's two questions, right? And maybe this is what Brooks is getting at when they say, is this idolatry? The first question is, okay, if Jewish people are commanded to keep these holidays, are you saying Gentiles are too? Are Christians, because we're sort of, you know, grafted into the olive tree, as we can say, commanded to keep the holidays? And there's a distinction here between obligation and invitation. I believe that Jewish people, even Jewish followers of Jesus, have a, a biblical obligation that we're commanded as a fulfillment of obedience and righteousness to God to keep these holidays. Why? More on that in a minute. Non-Jewish people are invited to participate with the Jewish community, especially Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, and all Jewish people in celebrating these holidays. But it's an invitation into a special time with God, almost like an appointment on God's calendar. It's not an obligation because Jewish law or Mosaic law was to Israel, not to all people. And we see in Acts 15, right? The Jewish apostles are saying, well, what are we going to do now? There's all these non-Jews coming into the family of faith through faith in Jesus. Do we obligate them to the Mosaic law? And the answer we know in Acts 15 is no. Here's some things that are actually part of the Noahic covenant, you know, before there was such a thing as Jewish people. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat blood. Abstain from sexual immorality. In essence, Jew or non-Jewish, these are basic things that equate to obedience with God, but we're not obligating non-Jewish followers of Jesus to the Mosaic law. So are Christians obligated? No. And I do want to clarify, you know, there's a lot of, maybe you've heard of, maybe you're afraid of the word messianic or Jewish believers in Jesus because you've had a bad experience where that person has started to tell you that if you really want to be obedient to God, you need to keep the Mosaic law. First of all, none of us can because we're all fall, we all fall short. Uh, Jew or Gentile alike, there's no difference. Paul's very clear in Romans 3. But 
Uh, second of all, that's called Judaizing. And the idea with Judaizing is a non-biblical concept that Christians need to keep Jewish laws in order to be righteous before God. We reject that here at A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. It's not biblical. It's not right. It's misleading. And it puts a yoke on non-Jewish believers that can't be bared. And even for Jewish believers, we can't bear it. Now, what about the idea that I said of obligation for Jewish believers? Is it an issue of righteous standing before God? In essence, if I, as a Jewish believer, don't celebrate Sukkot, which before I really, before the Lord spoke to me, Carly, in my own testimony, before the Lord really spoke to me and called me back to that identity as a young adult, I wasn't, I wasn't even in some cases acknowledging the Jewish feast. Did that mean that God hated me? or that I was separated from him, or that if I kept on that path for my entire life, that I'd go to hell? Absolutely not. Because ultimately, our righteous standing before him, Jew or Gentile alike, is based on our faith in the righteous sacrifice of our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus, right? That, that's what we believe. Make no mistake about it. And that's for Jew or Gentile. But the issue of obligation here is the idea of Jewish people, Jewish believers having this calling because of what God has done for our people to maintain an identity and to continue to participate with him in certain things like the Jewish feasts, like the holidays that demonstrate to the world the reality that God is and that he cares enough about saving the world to save and redeem and preserve a people called Israel who are responsible to reflect his glory to the nations. It's not about us. It's about him. So invitation for Christians, not an obligation. And yes, I believe, and you know, I'm, I'll defend it with scripture, an obligation for Jewish believers, but not unto righteousness, unto obedience. So I hope that clarifies it. I mean, anything God asks us to do should never, should never supersede our worship of him and our faith in him. I think the scriptures are very clear about that, and that includes the feasts. But we can participate in the feasts as a response to God saying, hey, you have a distinct identity, and I want to preserve that for you and your children by you meeting with me on kind of these appointments on my calendar year after year, because it reminds you who you are, and it shows the nations who I've made you to be unto my glory. So that, in a nutshell, from a non-theologian, is the idea there with Jewish holidays. Got it. Okay, the next question comes from Terry. And the question is, how does a Jewish person explain away Isaiah 53? Super good question. For those who aren't on their um, Bible app as we speak, as they're listening to this podcast, or who aren't familiar with Isaiah 53, maybe you're familiar with the language. I bet you are. And this passage begins, who has believed our report? And the report, of course, is uh, about this suffering lamb upon whom is laid the iniquities of us all. And you know these scriptures, if you, especially if you come from kind of a, a more uh, Pentecostal background or, or, or you believe, you know, as I do, frankly, that God still heals today. You know these verses that he was wounded for our transgressions, right? He was pierced for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. That's from Isaiah 53. What's the context there? The context is that by this one from Israel, for coming from the people of Israel, who was cut off for the sins of the people of Israel, that he was wounded for our, who's Isaiah? Isaiah's Jewish. Isaiah's a prophet in the Old Testament. Who's our? The Jewish people. Not exclusively the Jewish people here, but firstly the Jewish people in the context of Isaiah 53. So this, this very clear laying out that there would be one who would be bruised, striped, and pierced for the sake of redemption from sin, 
I mean, of course, all of our minds, right, go to, oh, I, I can think of one in the Bible who was bruised, striped, and pierced. It's Jesus. It's so clearly Jesus. So why, uh, going back to Terry's question, is that passage explained away? Well, first of all, you may be very interested and somewhat scandalized to know, and I'm sorry to say, actually, it's a shameful thing. Even though the Jewish people, by and large, we, we hold the word of God, the Old Testament, because uh, for Jewish people, the Old Testament is the entirety of the Bible, unless you're a believer in Jesus. We hold the Bible, the word of God, in very high regard. However, Isaiah 53 is actually not printed in many Jewish Bibles that will be found in synagogues. It's actually been excluded from the printing. And so even if you find it, which, is, which you're unlikely to do, and most Jewish people are listening to what the rabbis tell them and they're picking up the Bible that they're told to read from in the synagogue, and if something's not in there, then it's not in there. Don't ask questions. In essence, behave, conform. Even if you stumble upon Isaiah 53, the rabbis have explained this passage away by saying, well, the suffering servant is really a personification of Israel. Israel's the one who's been wounded and pierced because of the transgressions of our people. God's punished us. And it's true, there was consequences throughout history, exile, destruction of Jerusalem, murder in some cases. Horrific things happen that, that the prophets foresaw because of our disobedience. But the problem is Isaiah 53 talks about a death and a resurrection. In essence, he made his grave with the wicked, therefore he will not see destruction or corruption. Israel has not physically died entirely as a people and been resurrected. So there's some theological problems if you want to explain away Isaiah 53 as the personification of the people of Israel. To me, it's very clearly, it's very clearly referring to a savior who would die for the sins of his people, for the sins of Israel and of all people. And I believe through the eyes of faith that that's Jesus. Now, why did I say that? That language was not unintentional. Through the eyes of faith. So either it's not printed or it's explained away, or even if you can't explain it away, Carly, we have to remember Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul's very clear that there's a blindness or actually a callousness of heart, a hardening in part that's happened to, to the Jewish people until it says the fullness of the Gentiles should come in. So until the church worldwide, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Until the worldwide Gentile body of believers has a full maturity and recognition of who God is, which includes what he's planned and purpose to do with Israel, there's going to be this callousness on the heart and on the eyes of Jewish people, which means even if you read Isaiah 53, you can walk away not seeing Yeshua, not seeing a suffering Messiah fulfilled in exact detail in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So absence in the scriptures, explained away in the scriptures, or not be held because of a callousness or a blindness in our hearts. That's how uh, the Jewish community, by and large, doesn't have to deal with Isaiah 53. But if you want to share with a Jewish person, it's a great place to start because you're not starting from the New Testament where they can say, oh, that's the Christian's Bible. You're starting from our own scriptures, the prophets of the people of Israel. Yeah, I didn't realize that wasn't in uh, many of the scriptures. That Yeah, that crazy, right? That. It's conspicuously yeah. absent. Okay, next question comes from Michael, and he says, what is Ezra's rationale for the statement, Messianic Jews are not simply Christians? Yeah, so maybe we can you know, refer to Brooke's question and my answer to that, right? Unique identity and calling. And I think, Carly, there's some tricky theology out there. Maybe not replacement theology, 
But this idea, you know, when people quote the verse, there's no, Paul says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? And we quote, that's actually only half of a verse, by by the way. But we quote that and say, you know, in response to a, a podcast like ours, Carly, that has the chutzpah, that has the nerve to say that Jewish people have a unique calling and identity, even as believers in Jesus, and that they're not converting to Christianity, they're receiving the Jewish Messiah and standing theologically in oneness with their Gentile brothers and sisters who also follow Jesus. Paul's clear. Even the Old Testament's clear. All of us are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike. There's no forgiveness apart from the shedding of the blood of the Messiah. Absolutely, there's no difference. But in terms of form and function, according to calling and destiny, there are differences. Just like between the way God made a man and the way God made a woman, there's a difference between Israel and the way that God called forth Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the nations. Not better or worse, just a different expression of the fullness of the heart and the glory of God. So why do I, as a Messianic Jew or a Jewish believer, identify myself as distinct from the church? Better than? Absolutely not. The scriptures are very clear. If we're going to make a distinction, we're actually the most stiff-necked, weakest, hard-hearted, stubborn, disobedient people on the face of the earth. Moses was very clear. God was clear through Moses. So it's not better or worse than. The issue is that our calling was to be redeemed from Egypt and from sin afterwards, the lesser and the greater, to demonstrate the power of God to keep his promises and to do everything he said according to his glory, not just for us, but for everyone. And that calling and chosenness is actually, Genesis 12, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So let's be very clear. When we're talking about unique calling and identity and distinction of a Jewish person, it's not better than. We're actually supposed to be the servants of everyone else to point to, to be a signpost to the nations of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness and the merciful loving kindness of the living God. So it's a great question, Michael. If that doesn't answer it, write back and ask us some more specifics and we'll try to unpack them. That's Carly, that's what you and I are here to do in part. But unapologetically, we're saying there's a distinction, but it's unto the fulfillment of the plans and purposes of God for all people. I heard doctor of theology, who who I really respect, who's been kind of in the Messianic Jewish world teaching for, for decades, Carly, once said, God so loved the world that he created a people Israel to point everyone to him. Okay, next question comes from Elizabeth. I actually really am interested in your answer to this. She says, Ezra, I was wondering if you feel like you are in exile in America, and if so, do you believe you and all Jews are called to return to Jerusalem, or is that scripture just for certain tribes? It's a great question. So let's first look at the word exile, right? It, and I'm, I'm glad I'm glad, Elizabeth, you used the word exile. What does exile refer to? Well, it refers to the Jewish people living in exile outside of the land of Israel. God's clear, even in the first five books of the Old Testament, if you obey me, you will live forever, you'll live long in the land, and I'll send rain, and your crops will thrive, and your livestock will be doing good, and you'll live here without war. But if you disobey me, I will spit you out from the promised land that I gave, that I promised to your forefathers forever. And that's the key. It's another forever. I'm giving you this land, Jacob, you and your descendants, as an everlasting possession forever. But if you disobey me, which we don't have to look far in the scriptures to see that Israel effectively in every generation disobeyed the Lord, I will kick you out from the land. But because I'm a promise-keeping God and my glory will be displayed through your obedience or your disobedience, 
I will be faithful to regather you from all the places where I've scattered you. And so the exile, Carly, happened with the northern twelve tri- northern 10 tribes uh, in the 700s and 600s BC, and then happened in the 500s BC with the southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin and, and a part of Levi. Some came back to the land of Israel, most did not. And so to this day, getting back to the question about being exiled, my family are exiles. Well, what do I, what do you mean by that? Ezra, you're in the middle class. You have, you know, a job and a house and, you know, a car, most of which is paid for in the garage. You seem to be doing fine. Yeah. But let's not forget that my family came from Belarus and Poland on the Jewish side. Well, what were they doing there? Well, they were in Europe for centuries, actually millennia. Well, how did they get there? Because they were exiled from the land of Israel and ended up moving as a people group or a part of a people group north to become the Ashkenazi or the Northern European descent Jews. So I, along with the Iraqi Jew who uh, is waiting to walk across the desert of the Saudi, you know, of the Saudi wilderness to get to Israel today, if they haven't already immigrated back to Israel, in the same way as the Ethiopian Jew living in Gandhar, Ethiopia, in a hut, in the same way as the Jewish person living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, we're all exiles. And what we mean is we're living in what's called the Jewish diaspora or the Jewish dispersion outside of the land of Israel. So, you know, we work uh, in part. Uh, Carly at Jewish Voice Ministries with some Koreans who just love Israel and want to partner with us in getting involved in outreach to Jewish people. And anybody who doesn't live in South Korea is called the Korean diaspora. What does it mean? It just means Koreans who aren't in the in the land where Koreans are from. So the Jewish diaspora includes me, also called the exile, any Jewish person who's living outside of the land of Israel. Now, absolutely, the Jewish person living in a hut which is being burnt because they're Jewish and everybody around them is prejudiced against them in northern Ethiopia, is having a very different exile experience than Ezra Benjamin is having here in palm tree-filled Phoenix, Arizona in his house and car that's mostly paid for. But the idea is we're still both living outside of the land of Israel. So the question is, do I believe all Jews are called to return to Jerusalem, or let's say more widely, to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel? Scripturally, ultimately, yes, I do, but I also recognize that that's not happening in one time, in one way for everyone. So, you know, my wife and I are talking, dreaming, praying about moving back to Israel one day. We'd love to do that. She's from Israel. Uh, but I don't know when that's going to happen. And I also feel like right now I belong in Phoenix, Arizona, in the Jewish exile, in the diaspora, because this is where God has me according to his plans and purposes. But if a Jewish person says, no, you know, maybe some are moving to Israel, that's their choice. But as a people, we can just be wherever. I don't see that in the scriptures because the same God who allowed us to be scattered because of our disobedience has made it clear that he's regathering us in his mercy and according to his faithfulness. So if, if you want to paint me into a corner and say, are all Jews called to return to the land of Israel? Yes. One day when Jesus, the King, the Messiah is ruling and reigning on earth, I do believe that all Jewish people will live or at least be based in the land of Israel promised to our forefathers because he's faithful. But do I know when that's going to happen and how it's going to happen? And is it going to happen for everyone at once? No. And the last thing I'll say is, unfortunately in history, there's an inverse correlation between the freedom of Jewish people and their rate of return to Israel. What do I mean by that? 
Waves of Jewish people move back to the land of Israel when things get very difficult or dangerous or deadly for them where they live. Carly, right now with Islam on the rise and radical Islam kind of clawing its way into more and more facets of French society, the French Jewish community, which has lived in France comfortably, well-developed infrastructure, community, French Jewish culture is moving in droves back to the land of Israel because they realize it's not safe for them and it's going to get worse because of radical Islam in France. So that's an example of increased migration back to Israel as things get tough. And a lot of American Jews are saying, well, America's always been Judeo-Christian. It's part of our constitution. All of our presidents say we stand with Israel. We stand against anti-Semitism. True so far. But is it a guarantee that's that's always going to be true? No, it's not, frankly. And so in the future, if we see an increase, a sharp spike in anti-Semitism here in the States, will we see a lot of movement back from the exile of America? I'm putting quote fingers up back to Israel. Yeah, I think we will. Okay, next question is from Benet. When did the Jews stop the sacrificing of animals for forgiveness of their sins? Was it because of the final destruction of the temple or was it just more of an ancient practice? What do they do now for forgiveness of their sins? Yeah, the tabernacle in the Old Testament became the first temple, which was destroyed during the exile to Babylon and then rebuilt 70 years later. And temple worship and sacrifice of animals was restored into the second temple, which we know was destroyed by the Roman Empire uh, in, in 70 AD. Since then, there has not been a temple in Jerusalem, nor has there been a resurrected tabernacle being carried among Jewish communities in the wilderness. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. There is no red heifer known. I mean, some groups say there's going to be a red heifer that'll be born soon. And some groups say there already is. Let's not go down that road, but let's say all that to say the temple and the elements required for biblical sacrificial system, Jewish worship of God are not either existing right now or assembled in such a way as they could be utilized. So biblical, we'll say Mosaic law as prescribed in the Torah, Jewish sacrificial system or the Levitical system, the priestly tribe sacrificing animals to atone for sins or to recognize that God has atoned for sins is not happening and it can't happen right now. Now, the scriptures indicate there's going to be a third temple, Carly. We see it in Ezekiel. We see some indications of that in Revelation. I believe that is true. When and how is it going to happen? That's a story for another day. Uh, We don't have all the details. But could temple worship, will temple worship in, in the biblically Jewish prescribed way resume at some point in the future? Yeah, I believe it will. So what do we do in the interim? What does the worldwide Jewish community do? Well, a lot of rabbinic Judaism or the commandments built by the rabbis on top of the 613 commandments exist largely because of the problem, how do we get right with God if we can't sacrifice and there is no temple? And so in part, good works, repentance, and prayer are the three answers to what do you do if you can't sacrifice an animal in a temple? But if we really are honest with ourselves and the rabbis are really honest, Does that really get us right with God? Does doing good things and saying we repent and praying a lot give us right standing with the God who said there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood? Clearly the answer is no for being honest. So it's a problem in rabbinic Judaism. And that's why as believers, we believe God has already provided the answer 37 years before the destruction of the second temple. And that answer was the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Passover lamb. Uh, slain from the foundations of the world, as the scripture writers say. 
the ultimate atonement for sins for Jew and Gentile. But if you don't have that confidence and don't have that faith, it is a problem, which is not really solvable. So it wasn't just ceased because, you know, the PETA protection of animals group got serious or it sort of fell out of vogue. Temple sacrifice stopped because there is no temple. Okay. And last question is from Michael. And he says, what is the phrase one new man mean? Yeah. And thanks, Michael, for the question. I think you're referring to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul's writing to the believers in Ephesus, mostly non-Jewish here. And he says, for he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace, who has made both, parentheses, Jew Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself, in Jesus, one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God through one sacrifice on the cross, therefore putting to death, thereby putting to death the enmity. So the context here, one new man means Jew and Gentile alike, we are all under sin. We have all fallen short of the commandments of God. Whether we were obligated by Moses as a Jewish people to obey the commandments, or whether we were just sons and daughters of Adam who fell in the garden and who has been separated from God ever since. Paul's clear. In that sense, we're all separated from God. We've all gone out of the way. We're all disobedient. So what's this one new man? It's a reconciliation to God through the blood of Jesus, which is for Jew and Gentile, shed for all for the forgiveness of sins. And it's a reconciliation to one another. So this one new man doesn't say we got rid of the distinction. He says we've reconciled them both to God through the cross and to one another, putting putting to death this kind of historical enmity or separation and mutual dislike of Jew and non-Jew that existed that exists to this day in a way apart from uh, that oneness, that unity that Jesus prayed for on the day before he went to the cross. Unity, Jew and Gentile alike, of all believers becoming one as he and the Father are one. So the one new man talks about a oneness of redemption and right standing before God the Father through Yeshua and a reconciliation that that wall of separation between us that's kept us apart throughout history is broken down because we have a oneness that's more important, more important than how we were born. It's the nature of our eternal identity. Jew and Gentile, distinct in how we were created, but inseparable in terms of God's new covenant for Israel and for the nations. Great. Well, thanks, Ezra, for answering all of those questions. And thanks to our audience for submitting them. We, you know, we can only engage with you in this way. So if you have further questions, you can submit those on our website, ajewandagentiledisgust.org. Um, And one way you can continue supporting us besides engaging with us uh, is we, this, this podcast, we we bring it to you by your donations. So if you like what you hear and you want to continue listening, you can donate at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org, just a one-time donation. Or as we've talked about before, we actually have lost tribes coffee that comes directly from Ethiopia, which is one of the countries that we serve Jewish people. And if you give monthly, you can get that coffee to your door as often as you'd like. Uh, So again, more information on the website. We're also doing a free monthly coffee giveaway right now. So every month you can text JG, Jew Gentile, basically letter J and the letter G to 474747. 
to enter this month's coffee giveaway. And if you win, we'll send you a bag of the Lost Tribes coffee. So engage with us. Um, join us for more episodes. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please share this with someone you know that may be interested in the content. You can follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.